I've been very excited anticipating this series that we're going to start in today. It's going to be a seven-week series. It will take us through Easter. By the way, Easter's seven weeks away, so that kind of gives you a heads up right there. I've heard some people and read some about some people who've preached this whole seven-week series in one sermon. I have no clue how they pulled that off. I, uh, I probably only have a tenth of the... I, I thought it'd be simpler this time. I really did, and I probably got about a tenth of the material that I read and studied that I was able to actually get worked into a message because there's so much when you just talk about the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. It's overwhelming. And then next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at the assurance that he promises. And I, I, I just can't wait. I'm so excited to read the Word of God and consider what happened six hours one Friday. From 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock when he was on the cross, seven times he speaks. Each time that he speaks, it's not, it's not chit-chat. It's not small talk. It is precision personified. Specific thought, specific word, communicating a truth that still is relevant today. You know, the beauty of God's word is no matter if you go back to the Old Testament, New Testament, whenever you're reading the word of God, it's incredible how relevant God's word is for us. Can I tell you this? God's word is not only applicable and relevant for today, it'll still be relevant next week, next year, next decade Next century, should the Lord tarry and not return? I think he's coming soon, by the way. I just want to sound that word pretty frequently for you. And my heart cries out with the words of John, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. What a day that's going to be. But the word of God is more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper. It speaks with clarity. Jesus has gone through a time here. You know, as a kid, I kind of grew up with this thought, and it's where my flannel graph Jesus reference comes in. And by the way, somebody gave me one not long ago from the church. They had laminated it. I need to bring it with me maybe next week and show you what flannel graph Jesus looks like. But I kind of grew up in church as a kid thinking that Jesus just walked around the whole time going, Shalom. Good to see you. Bless the children. And everybody was like, this is awesome. We saw Jesus today. And then, and then as you know, that, that's like as a small kid. Then you get a little bit older, and you're reading about like they nailed him to a tree, and you're like, wait, hold on. That does not seem congruent with the rest of the story. Something's out of whack. One is not like the other. Which one's out of place here? And you go, what happened? But then very quickly you found out, but he rose again. And you kind of think, oh, okay, no big deal. But the more I read the Gospels, the older I got and could comprehend it, I realized that his life was filled with major conflict. Most Bible scholars divide his ministry time into three different periods of time. The first being the time of inauguration. And by the way, his ministry was inaugurated, was kicked off, was started off by his baptism. You remember the story? Dove comes over from above, a voice comes out of heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Bible says, and immediately the Spirit drove him, the Spirit, God, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, doesn't I've watched inaugurations of, of like political people, presidents, governors, and whatever, and it's like a whole day of like celebration and people wearing weird clothes and Standing outside, and inauguration is supposed to be a party, but as soon as he's baptized, the Spirit drives him in the wilderness to go in a head-to-head against the devil. For 40 days, he's out there without food, fasting and prayer. The devil comes and tempts him and offers him relief. It's, when, I'm, when I'm reading that and studying that as a teenager growing up, I'm realizing well, there's more to this story than just Jesus walking around going, Shalom, have a good day. Let me get, get some more bumper sticker statements that can be put on cars and 
the 21st century. And it's this real life, gritty, being misunderstood, being abused. And all these things are going on in his life. So when you look at his life, he had the inauguration part where it wasn't what you think it would be. Then he had a time of popularity. That's when he's healing people and providing food for the hungry. And everybody's like, we like this guy. And then he starts teaching. And they go, wait, wait, wait. We, we want some more of the fish and chips. But what do you mean take up your cross? And we're not too keen on that idea. What do you mean telling us that, that we are sons of the devil? What do you mean telling us that we're a whitewashed tomb that looks white and clean on the outside, but on the inside there's a putridness of death? So the last part of his life was opposition. Now the crucifixion of Jesus all happened in a very quick manner. By the way, And you can study this and learn all this stuff pretty simple. There's a lot of places to get this kind of information on. There's a hair floating right there. I just grabbed it out of the way. Got it. The lights do something weird. I don't know what that was. Some of you thought he just learned Kung Fu this last week. When you read the Bible, there's a lot of great resources. I'll be happy. I've actually thought about doing some kind of Wednesday night class on saying resource for biblical understanding or something and going through stuff that's available on computers and good places to look and whatever. I don't know if we'll do that on a Wednesday night or Sunday class or if we'll ever do it. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But there's a lot of places you can go and get good information. And you'll find out when you... you, uh, When you look at the book of John, for example, half of the book connects to the last week in the life of Christ. So there's half the book that goes like 33 years, basically, and then there's half the book that goes one week. (laughs) Pretty intense for that last part. Um, Each each gospel has a different focus, a different group that's trying to be Uh, addressed to so there's a purpose behind all of it that's really amazing when you study it and you understand what the point of it all is so the crucifixion if you don't haven't studied if you've never heard this and if you go to church here long you should have heard you have heard it whether it comprehended or not I don't know but you've heard this the whole crucifixion storyline started at about midnight in the garden now, there's a pre-play coming up to it, but the actual activities of the arrest and, and taking him in, in, into custody and all the things that happened, there's a bouncing back and forth between some kangaroo courts that are just ludicrous. How many of you know that, that in America, a lot of our laws are based on the laws that were part of the Roman government at that point in time? And there's a couple things about when you are arrested that we all take for granted that was probably, it was put in place definitely by the Romans and maybe a little prior to that, but with them specifically, that when you're arrested, you have the right to a speedy trial. In other words, they can't throw you in jail and five years later get back to you. But the other thing is you have the right to a fair trial. How many would rather have fair than speedy if those are the two options that are opposed to each other? Jesus had a speedy trial between midnight and 9 o'clock or so approximately in that that period of time. He's bounced back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And finally he's, he's, he's condemned to go down the cross even though nobody can really point a finger at what he did wrong. Now, How many of you think that's kind of a bit brutal? If you, got an, if you got a ticket from a police officer and it was a fine for $1,000 and you said, What's, why am I being fined this money? And he said, because I feel like it. You would probably say, this is not fair. I'm going to fight this in court. Jesus wasn't just fined $1,000. He was nailed to a cross. All kind of laws were broken. That's a whole other story, a whole other sermon, a whole other teaching. All kind of things happen all in the course of nine hours. And then for six hours, he's on the cross, approximately. He's on the cross for six hours. And in the six hours, he makes these seven statements. And we're going to look at them over the next seven weeks. Today is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
It's interesting to note that the earthly ministry of Jesus began with what? Prayer. The earthly ministry of Jesus concluded with what? Prayer. How many of you believe he is our example? Then prayer should be at the beginning and end of all that we do. And in the middle, if I might add. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul teaches us that we are to pray without ceasing. That means we are continually aware of God's presence and attentive to his voice speaking to us. In Luke 23, verse 24, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. In Luke 23, 24, we see him acting, fulfilling what he taught in Matthew chapter 5. You remember what he said in Matthew chapter 5? He says, you've heard love your enemy, but I tell you, he, he said, you've heard love your neighbor, but I tell you, love your enemy. <laughs> That's very unnatural. For some of us in the room, it's hard to love our neighbor. <laughs> and an enemy doesn't stand a chance in the world. Jesus said, love your enemy, but he didn't only say it, he did it. He validates his teaching with his actions here in Luke 23, 24. His response teaches us the significance of our sin, the vastness of his grace, and the reliability of God's love. Three things this morning, very quickly. Today I want to encourage you that you need to see your sin clearly. You need to see it for what it is. Now, in this storyline here, Jesus says the sin of those who were involved in the crucifixion was done in ignorance. Now, the reality is they had teaching, they had knowledge, they never had application of the knowledge. They knew what was going on, but for them, this was just another day, another routine, nothing special, and yet they were nailing the Son of God to a tree. Now, there's something I, I learned from that as I study about this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And here's what I know, that ignorance, number one, is no excuse for sinful behavior. Well, if I don't know I'm doing wrong, I'm probably not, not that big a deal, is it? What if you thought the speed limit was 60, but it was actually 30? And the officer pulls you over and he says, you're going 60 miles an hour. And you go, yes, sir, I was. And he said, speed limit's 30. Oh, I didn't know. And at that moment right there, you better pray for a gracious police officer. Because he is well within his rights. And a matter of fact, he is following his responsibility if he writes you a ticket for going 30 miles over the speed limit. Now, I don't know about personal experience. But I have heard that when you're exceeding the speed limit by that much, the ticket's not just a few dollars. It's a serious infraction. And if so inclined, the police officer can actually say, come and ride in my car for a little bit. A lot of people excuse their sins with this thought right here. Well, I, I didn't know better. Well, first of all, then gain knowledge. Secondly, they may say, well, it felt okay to me. I feel good about it. Listen, if you're doing wrong, it's wrong, and your feelings are not what you should follow. Let me go against what you hear all of the time from humanistic thought process that says, follow your heart. You can follow your heart as long as your heart's redeemed. 
You can follow your heart as long as your heart is submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But if you're going out on some crazy path because your heart is leading you there, you are in error. And if it is sinful in nature, it will destroy your life and separate you from God. I want to tell you today, don't follow your heart. Follow the word. It amazes me how often Christian people want to try to make the word somehow fit into their theology of life, and they want to make it somehow conform to what they believe, rather than saying, let the word of God bring transformation to me, let me be changed by it, let it have an impact, and let it affect my life in such a way that I become closer to Jesus. Jesus said they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know they were shutting themselves out of a glorious heaven. They didn't know they were choosing eternal separation from God. They didn't know they were crucifying the Son of God. Well, we can talk about the soldiers and all those involved with the crucifixion for quite a while. And we can amen and we can say that's right. But let's bring it home to us. What do we do with our sins? What's human nature? <laughs> we try to hide it. No, 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 I'm, I'm, no, that's, no, I'm good. I, I, I'm in control. I know what I'm doing, and it's not a big deal. And No, no, not me. You probably saw something else. We try to hide our sin. By the way, Adam and Eve did that back in the garden. Jesus, God the Father asked them a question, and, and, and rather than answer the question, they try to kick it off a different direction. You know what the Bible tells us? That whoever conceals their sins will not prosper. It's a fact of life. It will catch up with you. It will destroy you. We must understand that is not an appropriate response. Well, some people, uh, beyond hiding their sin, we try to justify our sin. <laughs> Maybe we go back to what I said a while ago. Well, my heart feels good about it. Your heart is so fickle. Your heart is so foolish. You're going to trust your heart? You have a better resource, the unchanging, the, the unfailing, the inerrant word of God is where we find our foundation. We try to justify our sins. Well, I'm not as bad as somebody else. It always amazes me that we pick who we're comparing ourselves to based on the outcome of the story that we're trying to achieve. So if I'm trying to tell you how good I am, I'm not looking around for good people. I'm looking for the losers. I'm looking for the drunkards. I'm looking for the lazy. And I go, well, compared to that guy over there, my goodness, I'm incredible. But now, if we ever want to feel sympathy or pity for ourselves... We don't go to the poor people at that point in time. We find the richest around. And we say, well, I'm not that blessed. I'm not that. See, here's what justification does. It, it continually changes the bar of appropriateness. Now, here's the bar of measurement that you and I will be measured against one day is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you're never going to make it. And I'm never going to make it. It's going to be impossible the only chance we have is that we jump in with him, into him, and we identify and connect with him so that we are seen as belonging to him. That's the only chance we have. We won't make it any other way. We try to hide our sin. We try to justify our sin. We blame others. That's really where Adam and Eve jumped into that one big time. Adam's asked, did you partake of the fruit? Well, it was that woman you gave me. Okay, Eve, come on to the conversation. Eve, did you partake of the fruit? It was that snake. You know, when you're trying to blame people for why you're sinning, oh, there's a lot of people you can look around and blame. Well, I wouldn't lose my temper if people weren't so stupid.
I wouldn't have to go out there and defend, you know, my property lines. But I got this neighbor, and he's trying. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to trick him and beat him. And I, see, when, when, when day of judgment comes for us, and, and it comes for Christians and non-Christians both, by the way, different outcome. We don't Christians aren't going to go to hell, but we're going to be judged on the way we lived our life. And I think we're going to feel pretty foolish. Or our life is being reviewed and we're like, well, yeah, God, but my neighbor. Yeah, God, but my pastor, you know, he wasn't very good. If I'd had a better one, I would have done well. And God's going to go, none of those people, I'll get to them later. This is about you right now. We can't blame other people for our sins. Not often we just quit. We give up and say, why I even try? But what should we do with our sin? We should admit it quickly. You know, one of the best things in life, if you think about just even in the natural, if, if, if you're an employer and you have an employee that makes a mistake, if they come to you of their own initiative before you even know about it and they say, hey, I made a mistake and I want to make it right and I'm sorry, I think that you'll probably have a lot more grace. Now, now God doesn't, his grace is sufficient but, it, but I think this is a better approach when we learn to admit stuff. One of the very difficult tasks that, that's given to me as part of the Oklahoma Assemblies of God uh, representative in our leadership is that we have to talk with people who've made mistakes, who, people in ministry of a, of a severe nature. The question that we're always asking in the leadership team is this. Did they come in to confess because they recognized their sin and they wanted to make it right? Or were they afraid somebody was going to tell on them and they got caught? There's a desperate act to try to get ahead of that train wreck. They came in to acknowledge. You know what? I just, I just believe with all my heart that God loves it. When our heart is so tender toward him that nobody has to prompt us to admit when we've sinned. We don't have to worry about the outcome or the consequence to confess. Because the Holy Spirit is in us. And he speaks with strong, silent words. When we sin, let's admit it. Let's repent of it. The word repent in the Bible means to turn away from. It, it, it indicates just this radical action. It, it, it's what Jesus talks about. It's, it, Jesus gives a physical illustration of what it means to repent. He's not actually telling people, pluck out your eyeball. That would be crazy to do. But here's what he says. If you got a problem, you better get it fixed. And if the only thing you can do to get it fixed is pluck your eyeball out rather than continue in sin, pluck your eyeball out. Repentance is this radical shift away from my selfish nature into the lordship of Jesus Christ that causes me to abandon the sin that I was involved in. We need to accept responsibility. Lord, it's me. It's not anybody else. When we do those things, we can receive his forgiveness. Now, I, I was thinking about this. What hinders us from going through that process? I think there's a couple of things, and you, you, can, you see now why I'm telling you I, I'm only getting about a tenth of what I'd like to talk about today. There's a lot more I could go through here. But I think there are two things that hinder us from receiving forgiveness, from repenting of our sin. One is, is, is fear. What will people think? I hope that all of us in the room want to have a good reputation. I don't want to play that down too much. But you know what's important, more important than your reputation? is your character. And yeah, we're going to try to do the best we can to have a good reputation. I think the Bible even teaches that's appropriate. But I don't want to have a fake reputation. And I think that when I do something wrong, whether it's even in the area of a sinful choice or even just in stupid thinking, when I could acknowledge 
didn't get that one right. In my opinion, the reality of that is people around there, they'll look at my reputation as getting stronger, not weaker. What's the other issue if it's not fear? What's the flip side of the coin? It's pride. Fear is being afraid somebody's going to find out. Pride is trying to keep up the facade. I don't want anybody to know. Let me make it real clear for you. This truth is so clear, God had it recorded in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is no one righteous. No, not one. For all, everybody say the word all. That's me, that's you, that's your neighbor. Some of you look at every I know they're there, but uh, we, we won't go there right now. Everybody on planet Earth has sinned. And when you sin, if you conceal that sin, you will not prosper. But if you confess your sin, God is faithful. And in his justice, in his rightness, he will forgive you and cleanse you. You must see your sin clearly. Secondly, you must see the grace of Jesus accurately. His graceful approach toward us is undeserved. By that I mean this, you can't earn it. Ephesians chapter 2 gives us this great illustration, this great statement of truth that tells us that salvation is the gift of God. Not something we could earn because if we could earn it, we would brag about it. Look how many stripes I have on my sleeve. See the one here for how often I come to church and how much money I gave? Wow, look at me. No, we can't earn salvation. Nobody can. We receive it as a free gift of God. I'm telling you, we've got to have an accurate view of the grace of Jesus in that while we were sinners, he died for us. And notice this, his grace in this prayer that he gives in Luke 23, 24, the prayer is given to them at the moment of their worst behavior at the time of their greatest sin. Let's be honest. We can pray for people if they're at least making an effort. It's a little tough when they're just walking and being obstinate and in opposition and in conflict and harshness. Sidebar for a minute, but it connects, okay? Hang with me here. I'm going to tell you how I pray, and you can work through however you think you need to pray, and God will help you to get there and whatever. But I learned a long time ago, God's not waiting up in heaven asking the question, what does Bruce think we ought to do? He's not perplexed or confounded by the situations of life where he's waiting for me to tell him, God, you need to blast that guy. And God goes, oh, that's a great idea. So when I pray about the Ukraine right now, I say, God, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know what your plan is, but I'm convinced you have a plan. And I'm convinced you know exactly how to do it. And Lord, just as your child, I just plead with all of my brothers and sisters right now that you would intervene and show your power and your strength. Let people know who our God is. How's he going to do that? I don't know. It may be in an act of judgment. It may be in an act of mercy. Does that make sense? Are you following with me here? I hear a lot of Christians praying sometimes, and they're trying to tell God all how to do it. And I'm just like, God, you, you know, on the knowledge scale, zero to 100, I'm like a negative six, and you're 100. I'm seriously going to try to tell you what you need to be doing? No, I'm going to come to you in humility and say, I know I can count on you. I know I can trust you. 
And I don't always have enough knowledge to understand it, but I do have enough faith to trust. And God, and I pray this right now, intervene for the Ukrainians. Touch the hearts of leaders. God, show your power and your strength. The grace of God allows us to see that in our worst moment, he's there for us. What will Jesus do with your sin? Three things. He'll forgive it. You know, one of the first big theological debates that ever came up around Jesus Christ is they, they brought in this, this man who was sick, and everybody was wanting him to get the guy up off the bed. That was, that's, that's, the, that's the go-to. Okay, Lord, let's tell you what you're doing here. We're bringing a sick guy in. He can't walk. Make him walk, okay? That's what we're doing here, Lord. And so they bring this guy. They actually drop him through the roof. You remember the story? Tear the roof up. How many of you glad you didn't own that house? They tear the roof up, lower the guy down in, and they're all going, okay, heal him, Jesus. Get him up, get him up. And Jesus looks at him and he goes, your sins be forgiven you. Everybody around is going like, wait, wait, what time out? And all the religious people go, he can't do that, can he? We brought him here to do this healing thing, but he's doing a forgiving thing, and, and it's supposed to be the healing thing because we don't know about it. And big debates start and fights go. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, said, you know, which is harder for me to say, to forgive his sins or to give it, ask him to get up and tell him to get up and walk? And he says, take up your mat and take off. And they go, oh, that's what we were looking for. Jesus has the power to forgive our sins. I, I try to be practical with illustrations and, and just think about it like this. Think about the fact there's another Bible story that kind of connects to this storyline, an illustration that Jesus gave. But think about if someone owed $10,000. And all of their wealth cumulative was six bucks. They owe 10 grand, they have six dollars. I mean, it might as well be 20 grand, 50 grand, 100, who cares? Even if it's 100 bucks, it, it's, it's all the same thing. It's an unreachable number. I can never get there. And let's say that a wealthy guy comes up and goes, oh, I'll take care of that for you. Think of the joy that that should create. The reality is we did not have the ability to take care of the debt that our sins created, but Jesus can take care of it. He can forgive us. Not only does he forgive us, but he removes the sin. It's what I quoted a while ago from, from 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. That means he'll do it every time for everybody. And he's just, which means it's the right thing to do. It fits into the justice of God because when we come and we do that, in the name of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ covers our sins. He's faithful to, to forgive us, and I love the next word, and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I've told you this before. It's a truth. And it gets truer probably, I think, as I get older. Uh, What I say didn't really happen this way, but I could have been, should have been probably nominated for the one most likely in my senior class to get a stain on his shirt. I'm not saying I'm messy, but Deanna, I'm looking at you right now. I'm messy. Sometimes... When I was younger, especially, I'd get a stain on a shirt that I loved or whatever or a pair of pants that I just had gotten, you know, and, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And God has put two wonderful women in my life who love me and help me to get stains out of clothes. So if you ever see me walking around and I got a shirt on and I kind of kind of try to, you know, like, hey, look at this shirt. What I'm really saying is there used to be mustard right there. But now it's removed and you can't even see it anymore. When Jesus forgives us of our sin, he also removes it as if it were never there. 
<laughs> then I love what the Psalms tells us he does with it. I don't have time to go into this, but it's a great story, great thought. I preached on it many years ago. He takes our sin, the Bible says, and he throws it to the depths of the sea. It's miles down to the bottom of the ocean. And the people who study that say the pressure from the bottom of the ocean to get something back up to the top, it's insurmountable. It cannot be done. One guy did this illustration of it. Any, any divers in the room? Any divers? Anybody just like swimming in the pool in the backyard? And you know, even in the pool in the backyard, when you go down to the bottom of the pool, if it's 9 or 10 or 12 feet deep pool, your ears kind of pop and do weird. It's the pressure, the water pressure. When you go down miles and miles to the bottom of the ocean, the guys who study this kind of stuff, they say that if you took the biggest ship that the U.S. Navy has in its possession, and it were, you, somehow you could submerge it all the way to the bottom of the ocean, by the time you pulled it back up to the surface, the pressure would squeeze in on it to the point, here's what they say, that by the time it came to the top, it would be about the size of a Coke can. Impossible to do. God didn't just kind of throw your, your sins into a trash can where someone else could come and retrieve them. He buried them. He, they're gone. The actions of the Lord are quick, complete, continual, and free, and bring freedom. And let me make this statement. I've said it many times before, but it bears repeating. Some people say, so grace is so good, I can just live how I want to. Absolutely not. Grace never leads you towards sin, but always leads you to righteousness. If you're saying, hey, it's okay, I can do what I want. Grace has got me covered. You misunderstand grace. Grace leads you to live a right life. Third thing, you need to see sin clearly, see grace of Jesus accurately, and thirdly, you need to see the love of God personally. Some people understand Jesus died and rose again. They get the, the facts of that kind of thing, but he did it for you. It wasn't just some act of judicial procedure. There was a personal aspect, John 3, 16. And then LT, it reads this way. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that, if you got the notes, look at the next word with me. So that what? So that. It's as if Jesus comes to each one of us individually. How many of you have ever felt that in your heart? You feel him speaking to you. You feel him loving you. God loves us personally. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loved you when you were unlovable. God loves you when you make mistakes. God loves you. And he longs for you to be restored and reconciled when you've sinned. Now God loves you too much to force you against your will. He's not going to make you accept his gift. He's not going to make you pledge your allegiance to him, but, oh, he's reaching out. He's calling. He's putting things in front of you that speak to your heart. God loves you personally. In view of all of these things, in, in view of sin, having a clear understanding, a clear view of that, understanding the grace of God and the, of Jesus and the love of God, how can we live a pure and holy life? Here it is. You've got to rely on the provision of God. Hear me this morning. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Can somebody shout, praise God? Not only that, because it's one thing to clean it up, but the reality is we're all going to get dirty again. We're kind of messy. And he cleans us up and the blood of Jesus cleans us. But then he gives us the word of God to instruct us. But not only that, then he gives the Holy Spirit to guide and protect us. I love, I love what, what Paul says in Ephesians. 
that he says in, in the first chapter, he talks about the fact that we have been sealed. We have been sealed in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. We have been encapsulated. A few years ago, there was a, a story about someone. In this case, they were trying to do right, and it wound up being wrong. But in the case I'm talking about, it's always good to go this way. They had a, uh, they had a, a baseball card that was signed, and it was worth a lot of money. So they decided to protect it, that they would uh, laminate it. And it became worthless. Some things are good to laminate. Some things aren't. But for us, we have been covered and sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's a wonderful thing. Saturated, covered by who he is. Not only that, but we have the fellowship of the saints. Can somebody say amen? The encouragement, the nudging, the prompting, the working together. The saints of God, what a beautiful blessing. We have the resource of prayer. We can talk to God. We can hear from God. And we have an assignment from God. Our purpose on earth is specific to each one of us. We have a place that we fit in the body of Christ. And we have something to do. If you didn't have something God wanted you to do, he would have already taken you home by now. But you got a job. That should give you encouragement to live a pure and holy life. Let me give you a couple of scriptures as we wrap up. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. All of them. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. I was thinking about this next phrase here. This could be a sermon with three points right there. Always would be the first point. How long you need to be serving God? Always. What does always mean? Always. It means Sunday. It means Monday. It means in the morning, at noon, nighttime. It means always work. Always work. You've got something to do, so do it. You've got an assignment by God, so finish it. Always work. And how are you supposed to work? With enthusiasm. What a sad moment it is to see people working in the church, and they're like, oh, yeah. Uh I'm just going to keep serving because that's what I do. Well, you probably need to go get a prayer time in and get re-energized. Because we don't serve begrudgingly. We don't serve out of compulsion. Neither do we give in any one of those ways. But we serve joyfully. We serve with enthusiasm. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. This morning there's a couple of points to wrap up with here for you, response moments here for you today. I want you to clearly see sin. I want you to to fully understand the vastness of the grace of Jesus and understand the personal nature of God's love for you. If you're here today and you've gotten off the path, you've gotten off track, and you need to make a a reconnection, if you guys could keep the lights up through this whole ending time, because I... I know it's a worship time, but keep lights up for me every week. Like just Sorry for the inside communication point there, but pull lights all the way up and keep them up till we finish the service because I want to see how people respond.
I don't know if, if, if it means that you've really lost it and you're on the verge of just having a big blow up, blow out, whatever. It may mean that you feel yourself drifting a little bit. I, I don't know where you're at in the journey. I don't know what's going on. But if you're feeling that pull towards sin and you're having trouble, today's the day to say, I'm going to rely on Jesus to be my source and provision. Can I tell you this in the room? I've been in this church thing for a long time now. And I hear people say, well, I'm always worried. What will people think if I raise my hand? Are people going to laugh? Are people going to point and go, I can't believe that. I've been doing this church thing like all my life. So we're looking six decades here. Probably normally most years, a couple hundred times a year at least. So, I mean, we're talking, it's getting to be a big number real quick. Somewhere around 10,000, 12,000 times, maybe I've been in church services in my lifetime. Never one time have I seen anyone scoff when a person says, I need God's help to stay on track. I need to confess my sin. You know what I have seen? I've seen people weep tears of joy. I've seen people clap and applaud the grace of God. It is a lie from the devil that says if you ever acknowledge you need God's help that people are going to somehow think less of you. Be honest this morning. So there's going to be one prayer for people who say I've made a mistake or I'm on the verge of making a mistake and I need God to give me strength and power to make sure I'm on the right path. Whatever that looks like for you. Secondly, if you have been redeemed and if your sins have been forgiven, can I just help you out? No one, we, you don't need a leader to get you to worship. And if you don't say amen, I'm gonna start preaching again and I'm done, but I got some more. God forbid that our Christian experience would be so shallow that if they don't do it the way I like it or if there's a little glitch somewhere, I heard the music come through a while ago, but who cares? Because I'm not here trying to look for the perfect singer, the perfect musician. We got great ones and they did a phenomenal job today. But all of that pales when I think about my Lord Jesus Christ who looked at my life when he's on the cross in a future lens and he said, Father, forgive him because he doesn't know what he's doing. Extend grace, extend love. And here I am today, a recipient of the grace of God. One who has received that personal, abundant love that comes from God my Father. We ought to be shouting for the goodness of God. We ought to be giving praise to God without any prompting, without anybody saying, please come in and sing along. Well, I don't know the song. I guess I'll just sit here. And If you don't know the song, just raise your hands and go, thank you, Jesus. It's in a weird key. Praise you, God. A weird rhythm. I can't know when to clap or not clap. Worship God. Worship God. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment, and I want everyone in the room to be as honest as you possibly can. Who's here today? You say, Pastor, I needed this sermon. I need to know that God's grace is sufficient for me. And there's things in my life I've done wrong. There's things in my life that I'm leaning toward. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the blood of Jesus Christ, with the power of the word, I will overcome. I will not fall. And if I have fallen, I will get back up. I'm going to be here today and say, Pastor, that's me. Raise your hand right now all across the room things you've struggled with, things you've worked on, things you're dealing with. It's what I need in my life. Many hands are going up. 
I'm going to ask you to do something. If you raised your hand, you heard what I said a while ago. Out of a spirit of gratitude for God's grace and a deep commitment to be humble and honest before him. If you raised your hand, would you just stand up right now across the room? I'm not trying to make a spectacle out of you, but I want to applaud your honesty before God. I just want to say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, impart the power of your spirit to each one who is standing right now. May they overcome all the the wiles of the enemy, all of the deceit of the enemy. May they see clearly what sin is. May they understand without question the vastness, the largeness, the overwhelmingness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may they know and experience the love of God that has been given to them personally. Remain standing, and I want people to join you right now who say, I am on the right path. I have the grace of God. I have the love of God, the grace of Jesus. I'm going to walk in holiness and righteousness. If that's you, don't make me beg you. Come on, stand up. Give a shout of praise to God. Give a hand clap of praise to God. Worship the King right now. We bless you, oh God. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. Come on, don't let it just be some little complimentary thing. Give him the praise that he deserves. Shout to the Lord. We bless you, oh God. Hallelujah. Great are you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, in that while we were sinners, enemies of God, that you were gracious upon us, that you died for us. May we celebrate your grace. May we experience the fullness of your love. And because of those things, may we walk in holiness. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We bless your name.